Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining me again today for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to look today at the story of one of Georgia's most recognized, if not universally loved, political leaders in recent history, Newt Gingrich. It's a name that makes many of his detractors cringe, even as supporters credit him with reviving the GOP after decades of lying moribund. It's Gingrich who's often cited as a major force in turning our politics toxic, and many see him as paving the way for a Trump presidency marked by cruelty and scorched-earth tactics for dealing with those who oppose him. How did the Republican Party become what it is today? Our guest, Princeton professor of history Julian Zelizer, says look to the career of Gingrich for answers. Zelizer's new book, Burning Down the House, The Fall of a Speaker and Rise of the New Republican Party, documents Gingrich's political career from a failed run for a Georgia congressional seat in the mid-70s to his ascension to the speaker's podium and ultimate fall from grace. I I want to start, if I can, please, by um, asking you to deal with what I think has been conventional wisdom about Newt Gingrich's career, that you remind me in the early pages of your book, and actually throughout the entire book, is wrong conventional wisdom. What we, what we like to think about, many people, when they think about Newt's career, it's that, is that when he, he went to Congress, his first term, an obscure backbencher, invisible in a Democratic-controlled House, and gradually clawed his way to the top. So there is some truth to that. But as you make quite clear in your book, From the very beginning of his time in Congress, Newt Gingrich made an impact as a guy who said, I'm here to take control of the House away from Democrats. So um, just as a starting point, I'm interested in the fact that you sort of of, uh, uh, help re-educate us about how Gingrich started out in the House of Representatives. Yeah, he jumped onto center stage within a few months. He, he didn't wait at all. Uh, that was the traditional path in Congress. You got onto a committee, you waited your turn through the seniority system, and it would take years, if not decades, until you were someone who was known and had influence. Gingrich actually consciously rejected that. Uh, he wasn't interested in doing committee work. He wasn't interested in waiting. He believed there was a sense of urgency about taking on the Democrats and for the first time since 1954, aiming to have Republicans retake control of the House. And he instantly made himself known. And what he used that others were not always able to do was the media. And he understood that within a few years, he could become a national figure if he used television, if he used newspapers the right way and radio. Uh, And that's exactly what he did by 1979 and 80, he's already in the press uh, as he goes against a congressman named Charles Diggs. Uh, And then by 1984, he's front and center uh, when he's taking on the Democrats using C-SPAN. So 
Okay, let's back up before he becomes a freshman in the House. Um, You know, people in Georgia, I think, kind of know Newt Gingrich's story, certainly the story uh, that uh, we know from the time that he became uh, a member of the U.S. House and moved forward from there. But I'm not sure that many people do understand, do realize, that Gingrich actually lost two races for that congressional seat before he won the third time out. Um, let's talk about those races in terms of the way he positioned himself in the first two contests, sort of a progressive Republican, and then how he turned the corner in 1978. But um, what was his, how was he positioning himself in those first two races? Yeah, so Gingrich, just to remember, was not an obvious person who was going to become a member of Congress. He was a history professor. He had his PhD in history from uh, Tulane. And and the first time he decides academics is not for him, and he wants to run it in 1974, he still is really a Rockefeller Republican, meaning a Republican who, who believes uh, that the center of the party of the Republican Party is still the best place to be. He's a Republican with ambitions of building a grand coalition. He liked Nixon a lot, Richard Nixon, because he saw him as a president who wanted to do for the Republicans what FDR had done for the Democrats. So he runs in 1974. He runs against the incumbent, Congressman Flint, who was a very old school Southern Democrat. Uh, and, and the first race is hard. He, he takes Flint on as a product of the establishment and, and starts to use a, an anti-establishment populist rhetoric that he would employ uh, for the rest of his career. He loses. Flint is still an incumbent, long-term one, not easy to beat. Watergate is dragging down the entire Republican uh, ticket, and the South is still primarily Democratic. He runs again in 76 against Flint. And there he really hones in the argument that he will use his whole career. Again, Democrats, uh, they are also a problem. They are kind of the, uh, the, the Democratic Congress is the equivalent of Richard Nixon. They are a corrupt, tyrannical establishment. And he talks about Flint that way. And Flint was also the chair of, an ethics, of the Ethics Committee. And he uses that as an example of why Democrats can't be trusted to uphold the institutions of government. He loses again, uh, but he's already really perfected that argument and he starts to shift to the right by 1976 and connect himself with the burgeoning conservative movement that's taking hold throughout the nation. And then in 78, Flint retires and that's the time that Gingrich will finally succeed. Yeah, um, and let's remind people that in in the late 70s, uh, uh, as it had been for decades and continued in many ways uh, uh, for a period to come, uh, being a Republican running for Congress in Georgia, uh, you, you were handicapped from the very start. This was still a Democratic-controlled state. Uh, people, Yellow Dog Democrats were still uh, 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 the dominant force in electoral politics, and Gingrich came along and started to change that. Fair enough? No, that's exactly right. He was part of that generation that was making the South Republican. And I, I think that some of that experience is part of what he translates to Washington when he gets there. And it's also a place where Democrats had controlled the House for so many decades. But to, to be a Republican in the 1970s in Georgia was not easy. And the ambition of making the state heavily Republican was still a bit quixotic. 
I mean, the state was changing, suburbanization was changing the state, influx of business was changing the state, but it was not clear that Democrats were going to lose their hold on that region. So, okay, we come back to 78, and I think a tone begins at that moment that is consistent throughout his entire career and which you document in your book. Um, he runs against um, a, a, a woman who was a state senator at the time, uh, State Senator Shepard, right? Um, and he decides in that race that um, he's going to have to go after her tooth and nail if he wants to win. This is, I think, a moment when things changing, changing. And, and it's interesting, at the very end of your book, you put this in an important perspective for us because it basically tells us one of the reasons is your book is so instructive right now. Um, you quote uh, President Obama talking to David Remnick uh, just weeks after Donald Trump was elected. And what Obama said to Remnick is, we've seen this coming. Donald Trump is not an outlier. He's a culmination, a logical conclusion of the rhetoric and tactics of the Republican Party for the past 10, 15, 20 years. What surprised me, Obama goes on, was the degree to which those tactics and rhetoric completely jumped the rails. There was no governing principle. There were no governing principles. There was no one to say, no, this is going too far. This isn't what we stand for. But we've seen it for eight years, even with reasonable people like John Boehner, the former Speaker of the House, who, when push came to shove, wouldn't push back against these currents. And in many ways, that statement uh, frames uh, your entire argument about how Newt Gingrich uh, uh, took us to the point when uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. And it started with that 78 race, I think. Yes? Yeah, the 78 race, Gingrich starts to give a taste of what, what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And, and one of the problems he faces, even though he wants to position himself as the conservative in the race, uh, Virginia Shepard's actually a pretty centrist Democrat, and, and she had a lot of experience in state government. But on many issues, she's pretty conservative. So he wants to kind of create wedge issues. And, and he does a, a bunch of things. But one of them is go after her character. This becomes the most controversial mm -hmm. part of the campaign. And the famous example is she makes a comment that if she wins, you know, she is likely to move to Washington without her family so that her family, her husband, could keep working. Uh, and she traveled back and forth from the district. And, and Gingrich pounces on this. And that uses it as a way to argue she's against family and she's an anti-family values Democrat. Uh, and if, if you look at the old newspapers, almost every campaign stop, then he's surrounded by his family just to reiterate the difference. Uh, and the, the Shepard campaign is just really kind of stunned at, at how low he goes in doing this. They're angry. They, they think this is unfair. Um, but he moves forward and he gives a taste of what he's willing to do to how people see his opponents. And he's, that, that's a small example, but it, it's the seed of what we're going to see from Gingrich. Um, we, we should probably point out that in 2020, looking back on that, um, it's hard to understand why people would have found the way he uh, campaigned against her as controversial uh, now we would kind of say, so what's new? But this was a different era. 
Right. And that, I mean, it's funny. That's a good comment. And I think a lot of the history I'm, I'm tracing today doesn't seem very shocking. Even the way in Congress, how Gingrich would speak in a way which at the time was seen as quite toxic. Today, it sounds not mild, uh, but, but it's, it's hard, especially with the president's Twitter feed, uh, to reiterate the point that this was really upsetting how Washington worked. Uh, and, and so, Look, that's when you're effective. He, he was so effective. He did change the tenor of politics. And because of that, looking back, it seems a little bit tame. Uh, but that's a sign, actually, of his success, um, rather than that not being pretty stunning. The rhetoric that Gingrich employed against uh, Shepard in uh, 78 caught a lot of his supporters by surprise. A number of them who'd been with him in the earlier races abandoned him. They were put off by the way he behaved. But it's interesting. There was somebody else who had a change of heart about Newt Gingrich at that point. That was the Democratic consultant, Bob Beckel. Now, it's it's interesting that in, I think, 74, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Beckel was mm-hmm. looking for both Republicans and Democrats who he thought had progressive agendas that might make a difference if they got to Washington. And although Beckel would never, ever work for a Republican candidate, support one, he did identify Gingrich as one of the guys who seemed to have a progressive vision who might be able to work in a bipartisan way. For our listeners, Beckel... Not only did it did Bob run the Mondale campaign, but for our listeners particularly, they should know that Bob played a huge role in Zell Miller's uh, victory in 1990 as governor of Georgia, uh, running the running um, the uh, messaging campaign for uh, Zell, and, and so that's the context in which our listeners might know him. But it is fascinating that Beckel saw Gingrich as a guy who might bring people together around big ideas. No, it's true. And I, I was surprised uh, that Beckel, the journalist David Broder, a columnist for The Washington Post, they had all identified Gingrich. They had their eye on him as, as A, an up-and-coming politician, even when he loses. They're saying there's something there. But B, he's somewhat amorphous in terms of what he is, really until 78 forward, when it starts to crystallize what he's going to be about. Uh, but early on, there's some promise he's not going to be just a hard right conservative as opposed to more of a almost 1960s renegade Republican. Uh, and, and that's part of the, the power of his rhetoric. He focused most on taking on the establishment uh, and uh, corruption, which in the 70s resonated. It was the year of Watergate, post-Vietnam. And I think that's what they were sensing. But then he turned it in very particular ways once he gets to Capitol Hill. Well, you point out, I think, that in many ways he took great advantage of the uh, uh, response to Watergate, the reaction to Watergate, new reform rules that were put in place, new efforts for more transparency in Washington. And uh, Gingrich was smart enough, cagey enough, clever enough to take advantage of all that to turn it uh, to his favor, especially in his uh, first efforts to call attention to himself and to begin to uh, label Democrats as corrupt. Talk a bit about what he did as he arrived in Congress, the first battle that he took on in that respect. The first battle is Charlie Diggs, who's a congressman from Detroit, one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. And, and he was a pretty respected legislator of that era. He was 
part of the first wave of African-American elected officials post-civil rights who was trying to institutionalize uh, a lot of what the civil rights movement did, but he was in trouble. And he was in trouble and being investigated for taking kickbacks uh, from staff members. That was the issue. Um, and what Gingrich did, he hones in on this within seconds. Uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable how his instincts works. And once he's on the Hill in 1979, he goes after Diggs and he starts to insist while Diggs is being investigated, basically Diggs should not be able to participate uh, in politics. And a lot of Democrats are saying, why should a young Republican tell our caucus what to do? Uh, and some Republicans warn Gingrich, I'm not sure this is the battle you want. You're going to paint yourself instantly as a Southern conservative who's playing on racial issues. And I found some private memos where the Gingrich team rejects this. And Gingrich says, well, I'm not a racist, so I'm going to go after Diggs and I'll go after others as well. Uh, and, and ultimately, this gets Gingrich front and center. Diggs is censured. Uh, by by the House uh, and in a, in a very dramatic moment. Uh, but Gingrich by 79, because of this, has not only made a name for himself, but he's seen and shown to Republicans the power of this ethics issue, the power of this post-Watergate set of rules that Congress had created to use them in a partisan way. I think you make a really important point. Uh, it, in that um, when Gingrich came in and and said he was um, uh, uh, he was an outsider who was going to fight the system, who was going to uh, take on the entrenched powers of Washington, although certainly he focused on Democrats, mainstream Republicans were just as nervous of him as the Democrats in many ways. The Bob Michaels of the world, who had for years gotten along with Democrats, they knew the rules. They understood the way the game was played. And Gingrich made them, you've already really said it, just as nervous with his uh, decision to come in there and basically start shaking things up. No, absolutely. And, and to understand the Republican mindset of that period, one is the Republicans did think of themselves as a permanent minority. They, they didn't even imagine there was a way they would ever win control of the House. So many of them were frustrated, and Gingrich understands this. They... They long for a different kind of status quo. This becomes even more important after Reagan's elected. And here you have the iconic conservative president, but the House still under the control of Democrats. So that's part of the mindset, frustration and resignation. But the other was a lot of leaders like Rob, Bob Michael, who was the House minority leader, uh, who would become the House minority leader. John Rhodes was the leader before him. They were also committed to that was the reality, and, and they were going to work within the restraints uh, of, of politics, meaning partisanship was important, but there were limits. They believed in governance. They believed that legislation had to be a goal. They believed the House was worthy of being preserved. So when they see what Gingrich is doing, it worries them instantly. Uh, and he's seen very early on really as a pretty dangerous force. Um, and there's been a history of people like him, and, and they're worried about what are they going to do. At the same time, they're a little enticed by his promise in 1980, mm. I'll bring you a majority that you've never had. It, uh, the, the House had been in Democratic hands since 1955, I think, was the, the 
the last time yep. they had not had the majority. So 1955, uh, Gingrich is there. It's 1980. Democrats are still in control. And as we look forward, it won't be until 1996 that Gingrich finally realizes this extraordinary vision that he has for uh, turning the House uh, Republican. And we can talk about that in a few minutes. In fact, let's do this. Um, let's get a quick break out of the way and come back and continue our conversation with Julian Zelazor about his book, Burning Down the House. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, I'm talking today to Julian Zelazor, a professor at Princeton University. Um, you know, I, I should, Julian, uh, let, let me be much more formal in the way I talk about your work at Princeton. You are the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes, class of 1941, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. I had to read it because it's a mouthful. Um, and you've been in that position for some time now, yes? Yeah, I arrived at Princeton uh, in 2007, 2008. So I still feel like the new kid on the block, but I'm not. I'm in the history department <laughs> and the public policy. So. <laughs> and we're very glad you could uh, be here for Political Rewind today. Um, let's talk about some milestones that you cover in Burning Down the House that are really important in the development of Newt Gingrich. Um, let's start that by saying that uh, you're, you're not convinced, in fact, you, you don't believe it at all, that Gingrich was accumulating or working to accumulate power because of his deep belief in policies that he wanted to see the country uh, take on, that he wanted to transform in a, in a reform-minded way uh, the issues that matter to the country. Uh, you really think that his entire career was about accumulating power. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, he, he does present himself as a big idea politician, the professor politician. Uh, but and, and I will say, he does identify by the 80s with the Reagan revolution. So at a very broad level, mm -hmm. anti-government, tax cuts, deregulation, strong defense. He, he's not a liberal. Uh, but within that, he's incredibly malleable in, in what he believes and what he'll push for. And again, the signature issue for him was ethics in the 1980s. This is what he honed in on, and this was his central argument. The Democrats weren't abiding by the ethics rules, and that's how he went after Speaker Jim Wright. We have to remember, right at that time, he himself is being investigated for his own unethical behavior, uh, including doing exa almost exactly what Jim Wright was being accused of in terms of how he sold the book. So, so I, I think really to understand Gingrich's contribution isn't to say he's a purist uh, or even that he's really an ideologue in terms of policy. What he really was focused on was bringing Republicans majority power. And I think there's a lot of room within that in terms of where he'd go. Okay. Um, so let's talk about some of the milestones that uh, uh, he, uh, uh, that took him on his journey. Uh Let's talk about C-SPAN. Yep. Um, the, the House finally passed a rule that allowed a TV camera to cover the uh, proceedings that were going on in the chamber. Brian Lamb came in uh, to, uh, to run the operation. 
And Newt Gingrich very quickly, very quickly understood what a powerful tool the TV camera uh, would be for him. Take us through uh, how Gingrich uh, how, uh, very cleverly made use of the C-SPAN camera. Yeah, so, so this is really a remarkable uh, example of his, his instinct. And so those rules that allowed a camera on the floor were part of the sunshine reforms of the Watergate period meant to open up light on how politics work uh, and, and to let people just see Congress without a filter of journalism. And C-SPAN is created as a network on this new cable television system that's growing throughout the country to cover it. And so Gingrich says, aha, that's a mechanism I can use to speak directly to American people uh, who are watching this. It's not a huge channel, but it gets a couple hundred thousand people uh, in most hours. And the leadership of the party can't stop me. Journalists can't intervene and say, this is what I'm doing. I can just say what I want. So. So in 1984, in May, he and a group of allies uh, who were part of what was called the Conservative Opportunity Society, he creates this. They go on uh, the floor at the end of every day with the C-SPAN cameras rolling, and they start to really launch blistering attacks against Democrats. They make something called one-minute speeches that you're allowed, anyone's allowed to do. And they say Democrats are weak on defense, and Democrats don't support Reagan's uh, war against communism. Ray, uh, Democrats are essentially unpatriotic. And he goes further. He starts to name specific Democrats and say, how do you respond to these charges? And a viewer only saw the person speaking. So they didn't understand the chamber was empty. So no one was there to respond, but it looked like they were guilty. The rules were the rules were the the rules were that the camp there was one camera. It could only focus on the uh, on the well where the speaker was speaking. So go ahead. Yeah, and the reason they did that was so members wouldn't be embarrassed with a camera catching them speaking or you know picking their nose. Literally, this was the worry uh, at the time, and, and so. So uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill gets so mad at one point because the Republicans are attacking his friend, Eddie Boland, uh, who was actually his roommate as well, that he has the camera pan the entire chamber to show viewers this is just theater. This is not real. And, um, and, and so he does that. And the Republicans, Gingrich, attacks him, says, look, he's breaking the rules. T Speaker Tip O'Neill is the tyrant I'm warning you about. Uh, and it gets even worse. Tip O'Neill makes this blistering speech saying this is the lowest thing he's seen in his entire career in politics. Gingrich throws it right back at him and forces his comments to be removed from the record because they were untoward for a speaker. And then the whole thing culminates with exactly what Gingrich wanted. All three major networks, CBS, ABC, and NBC, cover this whole thing, which is called cam scam. And Gingrich has gotten himself on the front pages of the news, on the networks. And all of a sudden, in 1984, he's a major force, which is exactly what he wanted. Give them confrontation, yeah. and Gingrich understood you will get media coverage. Very, very clever um, and, and successful on his part. Uh, we sh we, we, so, so that was a remarkable uh, period of time for him. Um, 
I want to go back a, a, again, uh, because the next big confrontation, I think, in, in his career, and that further elevates him in terms of the public eye and his uh, efforts to accumulate power, is going to be his battle against Speaker Jim Wright. Um, but, but before we do that, you referred to a book deal. Uh, that that is what will be Jim Wright's downfall. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that Newt Gingrich himself had also had some uh, uh, dirty laundry in terms of a book deal. Actually, there are two book deals involving Newt Gingrich's career. The first one goes back to I think seventy-seven. Gingrich had run twice. He had no longer was teaching at West Georgia College, called West Georgia College in those days. Um, so he didn't have much income. And uh, his wife, Jackie, was teaching, but they didn't have much income to get by. So a group of people who could still supported Newt uh, decided that they would pay him to write a novel. $13,000, I think, was the figure, right, Julian? Yes. Okay. These are supporters of Gingrich's. What? Tell us a little more, illuminate us about that first book deal. Well, that, yeah, so that's the first book deal that comes up in the, the, the Gingrich part of the scandal. Uh, and, and he argued, he ar- I mean, he argued it was totally legitimate and that he wanted to write an authentic book. And these were people supporting him. Others said this was a little shady. And basically, you have interest paying him uh, investing in this guy uh, through the vehicle of a book. Uh, as, as a way to, to gain support. Uh, Gingrich also spoke about how he's basically giving up teaching during those runs, uh, especially by 1976, so he didn't really have, have income. But it instantly becomes this question of why is he taking money uh, from people uh, to write a book which wasn't clearly going to be a book. So that was his first book issue. It was a novel, and uh, he did attempt yep. to write it. There are some very funny yep. <laughs> responses uh, from uh, people. I can't recall them off the top of my head, but the, 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 let's just say that even, even people close to Gingrich didn't think it was a particularly successful novel, right? <laughs> right, that is correct. This was not, you know, the the next part of the American canon. <laughs> All right. Um, by the way, to the best of my knowledge. We do have to say that I am not aware of any way, once Gingrich was elected, I'm not aware of anyone who contributed to that $13,000 pot of money to write the book gained political advantage from him as a, when he was a member of Congress, right? I mean, at least I'm not aware of that. Well, I think that's actually an important point, and then I, I'm not aware of that. But in some ways, down the line, that will be the argument that Jim Wright makes when mm-hmm. he's uh, facing Gingrich's accusations, that these things happen in politics. They don't actually break a law. Um, they might look shady, but it was hard to show that anything untoward actually came of it. So it's kind of interesting to hear that. And even to hear Gingrich always making that defense, it's exactly what Wright would say as well. All right, so let's go to Jim Wright, uh, because that was the biggest fish in the House of Representatives you could go after, the new speaker, uh, who had already been, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Jim Wright was a perfect victim or, or a perfect target of opportunity for Gingrich. He had been trailed 
by hints of unethical behavior in terms of campaign donations, people he'd given favors to. Um, he was not a terribly likable person. I think you make it clear in your book. Um, but without regard to those factors, talk to us about how Gingrich decided his big target ought to be the Speaker of the House. So, so he had gone after Tip O'Neill, his predecessor, with very similar yeah. kinds of rhetoric, but it never, it, it, it never really worked. O'Neill was pretty popular. He had a pretty strong base in the Democratic Party. So then Wright takes over. O'Neill retires in 1986. Wright is named in 87. Wright's an old-school Democrat from Texas. He had been majority leader since 1976. He's not very cognizant of the new media. He doesn't really think about how things look in the post-Watergate period. He's a legislator's legislator. He's not personally liked, even by Democrats. He's very respected, though, as, as someone who knew the business of Congress. Uh, but he had two things going against him. One is there had been stories in the press by investigative journalists raising questions about different parts of Wright's background. For example, he had a business, an investment business, with a friend from Fort Worth in his district named George Malik. And they had formed a partnership and they invested in oil and they invested in real estate, not illegal at the time, followed the ethics rules, but it was a story that people were asking questions on. He also had this book deal where uh, he published a book of speeches. And when he would give uh, talks to large groups, they would buy the bulk, book in bulk. Again, didn't violate any ethics rules. The ethics rules said a member could only earn so much speaking, but they could make as much as they wanted selling books. Um, so those stories and some others were circulating in the press, as they did for many politicians. And the second was he was an old school politician. So he didn't fully get what Gingrich was up to. He wasn't as comfortable in the new media, uh, cable television, for example. He didn't love to be on. He preferred not to speak on television uh, as much as possible. And he assumed that Gingrich would go away. This is a guy who had been in office since the 50s, and he said the Gingriches of the world, the Joe McCarthys, eventually the parties get rid of them. And so all of this made him a very juicy target for Gingrich, who had built a whole argument about the corruption of the Democratic Party. So um, your book details it, uh, uh, the whole campaign. You devoted a great amount of time. And we should tell people uh, again uh, that, um, as I did at the start of the show, that your book, that's basically the, the, what your book leads up to, and that's where you leave us. You bring us up from uh, Gingrich early in his life in Georgia and take us through the Jim Wright episode, which uh, creates for him an enormous opportunity to go on to have the power that he ends up getting. Um, but in the long run, Gingrich takes down Jim Wright. It's an extraordinary moment in American political history. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, to, to bring down, the, no speaker had resigned. And the speaker, for those who don't yeah. follow politics, is the most powerful person in Washington, some would say, other than the president. Uh, and so when Gingrich, this guy who is still kind of a young upstart in 1989, someone who was seen as definitely pushing the boundaries of politics, is responsible, really, for the campaign that brings down the speaker, 
the head of the Democratic Party, it's a big deal. Uh, it's a huge accomplishment. Because of this, he's literally uh, in the middle of, the, in the climactic moments of the story I tell, the Republicans vote to make him the House Minority Whip, which again sounds technical, but in Washington, that's a leadership position. And that puts you on the path to even more power. And because right falls, it said to many Republicans, look, we might not love Gingrich, but there's something to what he's doing. It worked. It legitimates his form of partisanship. He says, you know, tear down the guardrails, do whatever you have to do. That was his ongoing mantra, and it worked. Right was gone, and that was a huge blow to the Democratic Party. So this story, it's a captivating story. That's part of why I chose it. Uh, but it's also really a, a turning point in terms of Gingrich not only being successful, but then becoming part of the leadership of the Republican Party. Um, then, of course, Gingrich himself is it, it, his caught, caught up in a, in a controversy over another book deal that he himself has uh, has got at the same time he's uh, attacking Jim Wright, correct? Yeah, he has a at the exact same time. The month this is all reaching a conclusion and the House Ethics Committee ends up investigating right. The news breaks that Gingrich is also uh, in the center of, of questionable behavior where he raised money from interest groups for another book uh, that came out a few years later, including interest groups that had uh, you know, power in his district to promote the book, to help with the promotion, uh, which was unclear in terms of advertising. And everyone said, this looks kind of shady. And he, even, he has two press conferences as we're reading about right falling. Um, and, and this is part of Gingrich's skill. He just rejects the whole idea it was a scandal. He says it's different than right. My book's legitimate. End of story. Uh, where Wright is yeah. tying himself in knots, trying to tell Americans why technically he didn't violate a law. But so he, so he has this right at the same time. But Gingrich doesn't care. Uh, it's very much part of his psychology. Uh, Gingrich is fascinating in that way. Uh, later, when he leads the charge uh, of impeachment um, against President Nixon over the Monica Lewinsky scandal, uh, it Clinton. comes to light that he himself has uh, a, a Clinton. <laughs> uh, yes. It comes to light that, that he himself has been involved in an affair. And Gingrich rather forthrightly says, well, I never claim to be perfect. No, if you're trying to be perfect, you're not really human. Something to that effect. Um, right. And that was the same basic. He, he used that argument consistently when people suggested that he was being somewhat hypocritical. I, you know, there's a certain sort of freeing uh, 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 nature about saying, well, I didn't say I was perfect. <laughs> I sort of find that interesting, uh, uh, Julian. No, it's, it's true. And, and he'll also, uh, before the impeachment, the year before, this is while Gingrich becomes speaker in 95 after the 94 takeover of the Republic uh, of the Congress. Uh, and he is fined actually in 97 for ethics violations uh, involving the distribution of uh, videotapes to Republican candidates through something called GOPAC. And he's the first speaker fined for ethics uh, violations. And so the whole story for people who lived through it really defines how they see him um, not simply the ruthlessness that he is willing to undertake against people he opposes, 
but also what you're getting at, the, the thinness of his concern, uh, because he just dismisses everything as, well, I'm not perfect, or this is just different. But the stories are so similar, uh, I think it's hard for many of his colleagues, including quietly many Republicans, to distinguish the two. And ultimately, this is part of why, in 98, the Republicans force him to step down. They pressure him to leave the speakership because of all these contradictions and who he is, they couldn't afford to have him at the top of the ticket. Well, and also because his leading uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton backfired on them badly in the 98 midterm elections. They realized he'd taken them down a path that cost them dearly. No, absolutely. I mean, the two things, it's the midterm results, which happen right as the House is voting on impeachment, and they should have gone, well, they don't. And so, look, it's a, it's a Gingrich moment in that Gingrich had introduced the idea that no leader should be sacrosanct, no leader should be protected from being brought down quickly. So when he was no longer serving the purposes of his party, he suffered the fate he helped create. And the other part was his own personal affair, which didn't sit well uh, for a party that was going after the president for the same issue. Um, can we get a, a do you have time for us to continue talking after a break? I'd yeah. really love to continue the conversation. All right, let's do yeah. this then. Let's get a break out of the way. We'll come back with more with Julian Zelizer talking about his book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. This is Political Rewind. <laughs> We're back on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut talking to uh, Julian Zelizer, burning down the House, Newt Gingrich, the fall of a speaker, the rise of the new Republican Party is his book. Julian, I want to take a couple minutes to talk about Gingrich from a personal perspective and get your reaction, if that's okay with you. So I came to Atlanta from Chicago in 1983, in the fall of 1983. Gingrich very quickly uh, identified me as somebody he ought to get to know. And he would call me at our news offices, and he would ask if he could just drop by and talk. And I found it fascinating. I, I think you'd be interested in that He would come in, and we'd sit and spend maybe 30, 40 minutes, and he would spin out ideas. He was very smart at cultivating a relationship with a reporter like me. And and that that was a thing that served him well, especially early on in his career. Don't you right, Julian? Oh, absolutely. And I found some documents from the early part of his career where staff were already noting that very early on how he had reached out to so many reporters and, and was he was willing to speak to them uh, all the time. And Quickly, he had become a go-to person in Washington in the press corps, uh, like like in the state as well. So that cultivation was extremely important. I mean, this is a guy, and this is important today, who understood the role of this modern media uh, in in political power and political partisanship. So, and then things changed. In he ran twice against a Democrat named David Worley here for that sixth district congressional seat. Um, in this, I think it was the 96 race, although I cannot really recall. Gingrich did not want to debate Worley. He finally agreed to one debate, 
and he insisted I moderate it. Halfway through that debate, after having asked many questions about issues of each candidate, I mentioned the book deal, the controversy over Gingrich's book deal. And when that debate ended, no sooner had it ended, than Newt started yelling at me that I had violated their confidence, their trust, how dare I bring up an issue like that. And it, it, it was a complete turning point in my personal relationship with Newt but, but that's not the important thing. It was also a moment when we began to see him decide that cultivating those relationships with reporters, that there might be another side to that. Uh, attacking reporters might be just as valuable as cultivating them. No, absolutely. And, and he did some of that early on in that uh, he attacked the media as a biased institution pretty early on in his career. That was a a mantra of his that, that other conservatives also would say, but he really put this front and center. And that was part of the C-SPAN uh, kind of rhetoric. He would say C-SPAN, he would, he would tell supporters, was uh, one channel he could speak and liberal reporters or biased reporters wouldn't interfere with their analysis and basically filter his words. And this was a direct method of communication, a little like conservative talk radio would be in the late 80s and early 90s, and now Fox television. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I think he used, he used that rhetoric. And then if you remember when he ran for president in 2012, during one of the debates, the moment, and I can't remember who was asking it, where he really kind of took off for a little bit, was when he started attacking the media yeah. for the kinds of questions they were asking. So he used them as a force. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, we're, we're really getting to be short on time, but I think obviously we need to sum all this up. There are people, Julian, who could look at the story of Newt Gingrich, his doggedness, his determination, his persistence in reaching a goal that he started in the mid-70s and didn't win until he did convert the Congress to a Republican House majority in 96, and could say that's a story of an extraordinarily successful political leader who should, deserves our praise for all of those qualities. But that's not the legacy you believe that uh, you want to remember Gingrich for. So tell us what your uh, feeling is about his legacy. Yeah, I mean, I would start by saying what you said is true. And I do want to show he's a serious political player. He's not marginal. And he does achieve. But there's a cost to the way he does it. And the kind of partisanship that he legitimates in the party is a partisanship willing to tear down the institutions of government, destroy the norms that are needed to govern in Washington and make decisions, and finally a kind of character assassination of his opponents, which created a toxic atmosphere. And I think all of that is a legacy that not only do we remember with him, we see it front and center today in a lot of the Republican Party, and that's been pretty destructive. And as we sit in a pandemic where the White House and Senate Republicans and many state governments that are red are having trouble governing because of this legacy, uh, the costs are really hard to ignore. Julian Zelizer, I have, we're out of time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, one more time, the book is Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Um, Thank you so much for spending uh, so much time with us. It was a real pleasure talking to you on Political Rewind today. 
You can find more information about Julian Zelizer and his book on Political Rewind's social media platforms. We're going to turn away from politics in the next couple of days here on Political Rewind. After all, Christmas is just days away. Tomorrow, I'll talk with New York Times bestselling author Bruce Feiler. You may remember Bruce's book, Walking the Bible, which became a PBS TV special, or his book, Council of Dads, which NBC made into a primetime television series. Bruce's new book arrives at a perfect moment. It's called Life in the Transitions, and it's filled with advice he sought out from hundreds of people across the country on how they'd faced major turning points in their lives, losing jobs, getting divorced, and more. And of course, now we're all facing a major transition as we cope with how the pandemic has forced us to see our lives differently. That's tomorrow on Political Rewind. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, yes, wear a mask, and make a plan to vote in the runoff. See you tomorrow.